So going live in three, two, one. So hello, namaste, and welcome everyone to the Excellent Science Writing Podcast. It's your regular host Sogat Boloki connecting all the way from South Asia, Nepal. Uh, it's a place where we discuss about the best forms of science writing, science writers, and their journey in this field. So basically, we try to tell the stories of the storyteller. And uh, today, I've been joined by yet another guest. His name is Alex Ip. Uh, Alex is a Hong Kong-born, Atlanta-based science writer, a storyteller, and an editor. Is a founder and editor at the Jailam, uh, a place that tells personal stories of science and scientists. So, f- without further ado, please let me welcome Alex. Hi, Namaste, Alex. Hello, so good. Namaste. <laughs> you understand Namaste, right? <laughs> yes, uh, I I do yoga regularly, and by my understanding, yo um, yogis. Use the word for peace. Oh, really? You do regu- yoga regularly? Really? Yeah. Um, I I sit a lot. I do science writing, science editing, sitting at a table. My back gets really, like, my back gets really bad. And doing yoga really helps me get my body straight. And, you know, I can continue my work. And that's really helpful for me. Especially uh-huh. when COVID, you know, when everybody's trapped in their homes, then... Doing yoga at home is like the one of the best things you can do to, you know, find inner peace, like physical, mm-hmm. mental peace. Yeah, so I, I love doing yoga. It's great. Okay, yeah. So uh, just to give our audience a perspective on how we know each other, basically, I came across uh, Jailam, um, maybe from Twitter or from a newsletter, um, I think it's from the newsletter about the, uh, I think, science writing newsletter that uh, Mariana Lemas maintains. And I came across uh, that um, Jailam is looking for some personal stories, uh, basically from everywhere around the globe. So uh, I just thought like uh, I had this field diary uh, that was about uh, this you know, particular field expedition that we went to a remote jungle of the central Nepal. And uh, I had uh, had carried out a, a, a pretty good uh, research out uh, work with one of my friends. And I thought, why not pitch it uh, to Jailan? So I pitched it. And then I have been in touch with Alex. And it's been maybe six months, five, <laughs> five or six months. So we've been in constantly touch. I have uh, written another story for the Jailam and uh, yeah it's been going great so uh, that's how we know each other so uh, I will directly go to the question um, Alex so how you came up with this idea of uh, of making a place that can be uh, something that science writers could contribute to maybe tell their personal stories in some ways so how you perceive this idea yeah, so um, to tell this story behind the story, I think I probably have to start to a few years back when I came from Hong Kong to the U.S. for college. So, um, you know, when I applied for college, then I got thinking about what I want to do. What, I, what is the kind of person I want to be? What kinds of problems that need to be solved? What is something that I'm good at? So I grew up in a family, my... Um, 
that's surrounded by journalists. So my mom used to work at a TV station as an art director. So wow. yeah, she um, so she doesn't do journalism herself, but she know a lot of people who are great journalists. They tell great stories. They want to hold fast to the truth, especially in a mm-hmm. place like Hong Kong, where uh, you know it's truth is hard to come by at times. But then mm. I I think I got inspired by them. Uh, even when I was like younger, I really love science because you know I'm a curious person. I like to understand why things work, how they become the way they are, and um, I keep working on my science in my high school. But I soon realized that you know, despite my love for science, I don't really do that well in science because I'm not the kind of person that does repetitive work. Uh-huh. I dislike I dislike staying in the lab all the time. I just couldn't see myself a future in science, even though I was accepted to an engineering program, a top engineering program too here in the States. Mm-hmm. And I thought about, okay, so I love telling stories. I love science. Then why not I combine them together to tell science stories? And at the time, it was approximately 2017 when I started seriously planning to come to the States. When that was the time when... <clears throat> when President Trump uh, was having his beginning of his presidency, and there was a lot of talk about how do we reconcile ourselves with a lot of people who is who are anti-science, who mm-hmm. look at alternate altern- alternative facts, and that we have a big trouble reaching them. I come from a religious background, and what really struck me was a lot of people claim that hey, they believe the same religion that I believe in. But then they have a totally different conclusion of what I observed, of what many scientists, 99% of scientists observed. And then it came to me, how do we talk to these people? How are some ways we can reach them? Because evidently, mm-hmm. we talked a lot about statistics. We talked a lot about studies. We talked a lot about um, hard facts over the past 20, 30 years since you know the beginning for example, of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, but then that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Something else has to be an alternative to reach these people. Mm-hmm. So I was really inspired by Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, she's one of my idols, and she talked a lot about telling stories. Stories are the best way to reach people because, you know, they reach emotions. Um, humans yeah. act on emotions and climate change is a human problem it is an emotional problem it's not like we don't have the facts the facts are not enough and to reach people some of them we know some of them are really close to who have trouble understanding the science or accepting the science and stories are a good part to start and that's where mm-hmm. I really doubled down on telling science stories but as a person who's a first generation college student who's also Asian, I realized that there wasn't a place for me because um, a lot of the great projects that been started before I was in the States, some of them are still here. We're great friends. Many mm-hmm. of them were based in big cities in the US or in Canada. A lot of them uh, were run by white people and a lot of them were in person, which meant that you know, folks like me that's from another country or might not speak English as the first language, my first language is Cantonese, then we might have a hard time breaking in and having our stories heard. And yeah. that's the biggest group of people that we should reach out to because 
there's a there's a large group of people that's traditionally been neglected by science. If they don't see themselves as part of science, it's really hard for them to trust or to see their eye or see their role models or to yeah. see something that resonates with their lives, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why how I decided that you know the asylum can be a great place where we can tell personal stories of science and humanity, and we encourage people who are from various different backgrounds, which we currently have uh, contributors from over 25 countries or regions to tell the mm. science stories. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. For, um, I think many of us, when um, we try to, first of all, enter into this uh, field, um, creating a platform is completely different than just writing a story, right? So um, how you you know, decide to go directly into, you know, editing and all, you may not have, um, you know, you are young and you may not have that much of experience in the beginning as well, you know, with the editing and job. It looks so daunting for a lot of us and uh, how you actually, (laughs) I'm quite intrigued by your, you know, dare to go directly into this field. So tell me a bit about, you know, your journey into editing. So, yeah, it's, it's really daunting for me until this day, uh-huh. and yeah. I am a nobody. I came from another country that's very far mm-hmm. away from the States, and I had to mm-hmm. build a network from scratch. I had to convince people that, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm here to help you tell your story, make it as good as possible, while being respectful of what you believe in, and respectful of science. And that's hard mm-hmm. and it took a lot of time, but I was really fortunate, really, really fortunate that there's a bunch of people, some people that I know in real life first, some of them I met through Twitter or other social media. They believed in me. Um, I don't know why they believed in me. They, they didn't take a single penny. They just believed in what I do and what my vision was and they entrusted me with their story. It's a big responsibility when somebody entrusts their life stories, their most vulnerable moments, yeah. and some of their most difficult moments, which is or is not involved in science too, for me. And I received their trust, and I took it as my responsibility to make sure that I can elevate their stories and provide that space for them to mm-hmm. speak for themselves. And that took a lot of time to refine my craft. Uh, I made some mistakes, but I was fortunate that, you know, my contributors told me about those mistakes and I worked to refine that. And I also spent a lot of time educating myself by yeah. reading great science articles, by learning from my friends and other peers that have been doing the same stuff and attending a lot of conferences, making connections so that those connections can continually spread as a network that helped Asylum grow from where it was three and a half years ago until what it is right now. Mm-hmm. So this idea of building a platform where scientists or science uh, writers can contribute it was your idea from Hong Kong, right, then? So um, it isn't actually my idea. I would give the credit to the Story Collider. They are oh. some absolutely great people. 
Um, they tell a lot of great science stories, but at the time it was pre-COVID, so their model of, of serving like in-person shows in communities in large cities and with venues that can support it just didn't work well for us that's based in Asia. So I decided that, hey, we might need something to complement it. And that's how we sort of gradually developed our own style, which also combined a good chunk of science journalism, a lot of visual and like visual or video projects, and also mm -hmm. uh, very importantly, data visualization, which um, really helps trying to tell stories in multiple angles that goes beyond what we originally intended when the asylum began. Hmm, makes sense. And uh, I also wanted to uh, know your first leap into science journalism. I can remember my mind quite uh, vividly because uh, I think uh, it was a letter to the editor to one of the biggest uh, national outlets uh, here in uh, Nepal. So I wrote a letter to the editor. It's about 100 to 150 words. And it's about a science uh, research and uh, it got the biggest highlight. You know, it's just 100 to 150 words, but it got uh, a big highlight. I, I think uh, it was in the center of all the letter to the news, uh, <laughs> letter to the editor section. So I was quite, you know, pumped off to do uh, this kind of thing uh, in a regular basis. So I think that was kind of a first leap for me into science journalism. So I wanted to know your, how was it uh, like, um, you know, uh, maybe editing stories for the first time for the Jailam or maybe writing your own story? So um, I actually started writing about science before the asylum started. Um, it began when I was really involved in citizen science efforts when I was in my senior year of high school. So some mm -hmm. of the projects that I was involved in uh, were iNaturalist, which is run by um, a museum in California. There's mm -hmm. also the City Nature Challenge, mm -hmm. which is a global competition of finding the most species and finding the most individual creatures that's across mm -hmm. the world. And then another one is Zooniverse, which features a bunch of citizen science projects that have... Um, you know, research significance, they get published on papers. And I was doing those projects, right? Because, you know, I don't want to study in school. I'd rather spend time doing in these projects, which I felt like had a real life impact. Then I asked myself, who are the other people who was participating in this space? Why are they doing this? Um, what are the impacts that they're, they're changing? And I took upon myself to write about it. I was really fortunate that City Nature Challenge allowed me to cover their event in Hong Kong. And I was also invited by uh, WWF to cover one of their citizen science projects, which was mm -hmm. a survey of fireflies in a natural reserve in Hong Kong. And as I wrote about it, um, you know, I had to move to the States. But then eventually... Uh -huh. The, this is the first steps of the network that I've developed where those citizen scientists and the scientists that support them were the first, um, you know, blocks, building blocks of the asylum where they shared their stories because we developed that trust 
through my participation of these citizen science projects. So mm. now looking back like three or four years now, that's important. That's what science was intended to be, where science people who do research, who might have a professional education, they work with locals to solve problems of their interest as a way of elevating locals and educating one another about culture, about science, about, you know, respecting nature and respecting people. Mm. And, you know, this does translate to the asylum because we want to help build these connections through storytelling, through digital storytelling. It might be a bit different from participating in a project, for for example, yeah, like yeah, six yeah. months, three mm. months. But, you know, we need everything. We need to throw everything against the wall and see what sticks because the stakes are really high when it comes to solving global problems. And we want to make sure that we leave an impact and we leave a legacy and to try to reach as many people as possible. Mm, sure, sure. And uh, uh, so we'll try to make sure that uh, our episode, uh, this episode doesn't get too long. So we'll make sure that it will be within 30 minutes. So uh, I'll try to move on to the next section. So are there any specific books, resources that you use that helps in sharpening your writing, editing, or communication skills? Absolutely. So um, one of the uh, resources I use a lot uh, is the Open Notebook. Yeah. The Open Notebook, uh, it's a great resource. Um, love the people who've run it. They talk a lot about the story behind the stories and uh, including interviews about like uh, marked science articles that I really learned a lot from the skills. The second mm -hmm. one that uh, I use a lot is the AP style book. The AP mm -hmm. style book, um, you know, it's one of the main standards in which newsrooms across the states are using. Um, it, it can be outdated in some aspects, but it's great to understand how journalism has evolved to this point and keeping up with the standards of the industry so we can be a little bit more professional while keep telling these personal stories. Yeah. I use a lot uh, is that the nice science journalism program, they have an editing handbook which unfortunately I even haven't read through all of it because it's really dense, but it's a really good starting point for anybody who's interested in editing. And the fourth one is just Twitter where I just ask people questions. There are really a lot of people out there that are happy to answer and to support you and answer those questions. In science mm -hmm. journalism, it's one of, by far one of the most generous industries that I've heard of. Everybody's really supportive yeah. of each other. Really? And, uh, any of any uh, favorite science fiction or non-science fiction books that you would like to recommend? Yeah, so I am currently reading a book that's about the climate crisis. Mm. So it features a lot of essays from women in climate action. And mm -hmm. some of them are very personal. Some of them are poems. Some of them are just... Um, Essays of their research. The what's, the, what, what's, what's the name of the book? Oh, the name of the book is All We Can Say. All We Can Say. Yes, I just tweeted about it uh, two days ago. Um, it's a big project where 
a bunch of climate scientists, activists, researchers, communicators, by mm. personal about the climate crisis, about stating what is the problem, how we can solve it, what's the way forward. Mm, sure. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think climate change and issues related with climate change are one of the major agendas and discussion. And uh, yeah, I think it is uh, an emerging beat and it is one of the very necessity and that we have this kinds of discussion and all. I think this resource will be uh, very helpful for a lot of folks out there. Uh, so uh, we'll move on to the next section in which we discuss about uh, two different articles. Uh, one, uh, the uh, one I think Alex edited himself. Uh, it's about uh, the struggle of uh, two black women in U.S. to earn a physics PhD. And uh, I briefly uh, went through the piece, and I kind of understand uh, um, the major motive uh, behind this article and how they are trying to communicate uh, their uh, struggle of uh, earning a PhD, what are the challenges that they had to go through. So uh, just wanted to have a quick, uh, you know, uh, understanding from uh, Alex about uh, what actually stand out uh, for you while editing this piece. And maybe you can summarize the main points of the article in maybe three to four points. Yeah, absolutely. So Katrina Miller is a physics PhD student at the University of Chicago. She's also mm -hmm. a she magazine over the summer. So she reached out to me and she said, hey, I want to talk about rich programs in physics PhDs. I've never heard about the word bridge programs in this context ever before. So I uh -huh. really had to educate myself about what is a bridge program and what are the challenges that black women are facing currently in the field of physics. What was mm -hmm. really extremely shocking to me was in the US, which it's one of the most advanced physics economies in anywhere in the world, only less than 20 black people get their PhD degrees in physics every year. Mm -hmm. And the number is even smaller for Black women. A statistic I found from the American Institute of Physics showed that from 1972 to 2017, which is a period of 45 years, a grand total of 90 Black women has got a physics PhD degree, which is translating to two every year, which is an incredibly low number when you think about it. The entire country... The U.S. has 300 million people, and only two of them every year gets a physics PhD degree that are Black women. Uh. So the important part about this article is to show, first, the scale of the issue. It's very, it's, you have to quantify how the issue is to show that there are serious inequities in Black women getting into physics. Uh -huh. And it also blends together the personal experience of Katrina Miller. It's such a story. She mentions it multiple times. And she also goes through what might have not worked well for herself and for other people who might have been pushed out of the field through her personal mm -hmm. experiences and mm -hmm. also 
some statistics. So the most important part for me was to frame the headline, which I still have trouble framing the headline in a way that does not involve being clickbait, but showing how serious the stat of the issue is. Yeah. Also using data visualization so readers can just figure out how Black women are underrepresented and to a broader extent, how Black students have trouble entering physics. If everything mm-hmm. we've been doing are well-intentioned, then why does the result show such serious inequities in physics? Mm. There must have been a problem. And we are talking about one solution, which is bridge programs. Bridge programs are where these applicants for a PhD program, many of them from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, that they get to essentially do an integrated program with mentorship and probably a master's degree that helps them adapt to the speed of a PhD program and eventually finish a PhD program in the same number of years as other people who enter through the regular route. Mm. So um, these applicants, they are not uh, weaker candidates. They are mm-hmm. as strong, if not better, than many of the candidates because of their life experiences and the adversity that they face through. But the challenge is to understand and to position themselves in the way that, you know, the rest of the field accepts them for who they are. And also to work through difficulties in terms of discrimination, in terms of invisibility within their own communities. And to eventually, Katrina suggests the final solution is bridge programs was just a bridge. It was a stopgap. The better solution is making sure that grad programs are equitable to a point that anyone who wants to succeed in those programs can succeed regardless of who they are, how much money they have, where they come from, or what their previous background was, which was the point of the article. And my my goal was to help her make sure that point comes out as strongly as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it kind of makes sense. And uh, it's great that you are giving, you know, opportunities for underrepresented communities, especially in these kinds of fields to highlight uh, the importance of, uh, you know, um, these kinds of uh, personal stories. I think it kind of resonates with lots of folks out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, sometimes the most important thing to solving a problem is to talk about it. Yeah. The climate change. If we don't talk about climate change, we can't solve it. So mm. when it comes to, in this context, about why the field of physics doesn't represent the rest of the U.S. at large, then we have to talk about who are the people who are receiving a physics education, and what are we mm. are doing to the people who are receiving such an education that they have the ambition and they could see themselves continuing doing research or going into industry or going into academia. And um, that's why I'm, I was really fortunate because we got a very small grant from uh, Black and Science Communication and also from Compass Science Communication uh-huh. to help tell these stories. And that also establishes our credibility with Black science storytellers because I mm-hmm. am Asian and my lived experiences could be in some way similar yeah. in terms of my, my education background and relative poverty. 
but not to the extent of the racism that I myself experienced. But by yeah, having a friend and people who personally live through the experience entrusting me with these stories, then the asylum can build credibility as we continue to elevate Black voices. Mm, makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, we're near the end of the show. And uh, Alex, any final thoughts uh, about this podcast? Yeah, I just want to thank you for making this. And I think what's really important about science storytelling, it's just be- being empathetic. It's mm-hmm. really important the stories we tell. Not, not, just, not just in writing those stories and listening yeah. to people about these stories, but also editing and putting myself in other people's shoes. I think that's really important. And every article that I edit, I consider it a learning opportunity. And this growth mindset really helps me improve and become a better person, both in my craft and both as a human being. Mm. Uh, thank you so much, Alex, uh, for your uh, thoughts about the show. So I'll try to make sure that I uh, include more, uh, you know, diverse voices, uh, more writers from underrepresented communities to tell their stories. So I think, uh, yeah, I'll, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm making platform quite similar like Jailam, who in which science writers come and uh, share their struggle of coming up with the stories or struggle with, uh, you know, establishing themselves in this uh, particular field. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, thank you so much, Alex, for dedicating time for this. I personally love to chat uh, with uh, fellow science writers and who are working uh, in this field uh, to learn about their strategies, way of thinking, how they approach their work and so on. So I hope our listeners also enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you all for sticking with us till the end of the show. I'll be linking all the resources discussed in the podcast in the description section of the podcast. So make sure to follow Alex on Twitter. It's uh, at the rate AlexIp718. And so read more science stories. Keep listening to the excellent science writings podcast. See ya. Bye-bye and namaste.